No, that didn't sound very confident, but we'll go with it anyway. <laughs> All right, good morning, everybody. We will go ahead and get started this morning, and we'll open with a quick word of prayer and then uh, look at a few articles and get into God's Word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to gather together. We thank you for your word. Thank you for your plan for this world that we see unfolding before us. And we just, uh, we thank you that we can have direction from your word about our, about our thinking and about the things that are going on in this world. Just pray that you would help us to be conformed to your image through the study uh, of these things and through the study of your word. I pray that we would not be discouraged when we uh, see the news around us, but instead we would be encouraged uh, to know that we are lights for you in this dark world and that your will is being done and and things are uh, just falling exactly into place for your plan to redeem this world to come to pass. And we just uh, thank you and praise you for that and pray that we would be your ambassadors in this world, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I did, yes. So, uh, with that, we will begin with a couple articles here. I guess it's actually more than a couple because it's been a couple weeks since we've done this, so I've got uh, maybe one extra this morning. Uh, here's one from uh, Russia Today. Is that what it is? Is it Russia Today or Russian Times? I don't know. RT. A lot of it is pure propaganda, but every once in a while you can find a diamond in the rough. Uh, and this is May 17th. Uh, article. Headline is Moscow and Tehran sign key rail deal, and on this on its surface, this seems kind of, you know, why even bother talking about this? But there are a couple of couple of reasons at any rate. Uh, article says Russian President Vladimir Putin and his Iranian counterpart Ibrahim Raisi, sorry if I mispronounced the names, have taken part in a signing ceremony via video link for an agreement on the construction of a rail line between the Iranian cities of Rasht and Astara, the Kremlin press service reported on Wednesday. The railroad linking the two cities is part of the International North-South Transportation Corridor, a 7,200-kilometer multimode transit system that connects ship, rail, and road routes for moving cargo between India Iran, Azerbaijan, Russia, Central Asia, and Europe. So, this is uh, kind of, it's not unprecedented, but it certainly is since, uh, since oh, uh, I don't even know if that's true, but at any rate, since the, around the 1500s, <laughs> which is quite a while ago, most of transport from the Far East moved via ships, uh, around the oceans and uh, into Europe from there. And whether the Western world wants to admit it or not, Europe has has been the center of uh, things that are going on in the world, uh, science, 
advancements, uh, technology, all of these kinds of things. Europe has been the center of that for quite some time. And and so getting goods into Europe from the rest of the world was, was very important. And I would encourage you to study, you could study things like the, the British East India Company, the uh, the Dutch East India Company, and these historic things that went on that had very much to do with trade and these kinds of things. Uh, and you can see the importance of this really for the entirety of the world. And this is bypassing the traditional routes that, that have been in use for quite some time. This uh, signing of this agreement and the plans to build this route basically bypasses uh, Europe in order to to get goods from the Far East into Europe. It can pass up through Iran and the Central Central Asia rather than going around uh, Africa or up through the Suez Canal and that, that kind of thing. This is sort of bypassing that. So there are two reasons right off the top of my head that I can think that this is important in uh, biblical terms. There's one, one point is that we know from our study of the book of Revelation that Babylon is going to become kind of the capital of the world. It is not that way <laughs> now in, in the world. Uh, there isn't really a world capital per se, but it's definitely in the West is where that would be. Brussels, uh, Belgium is uh, the head of the European Union. Uh, New York City is where the United Nations uh, capital is, if you will. Their headquarters is in New York City. Uh, and, but according to the scriptures, there there is a shift that is going to take place to the east. There's definitely looks to be from our understanding, a, a literal, consistent literal interpretation of the Bible that there's going to be a battle between East, East and West that leads up to, and the result of that battle will form a one world government at some, at some point in time and its headquarters is going to be in Babylon, which is, oh, sort of a compromise between the East and the West. We know that the kings of the East are going to rise and come and try to invade Israel during the end times. So the East is definitely on the rise. I would put nations like Iran, uh, India, China as being part of these east, this eastern part. Indonesia is the largest, uh, highest population of uh, Muslim country in the world. There are, there are a lot of people over there in that part of the world. That's why nations like Japan in World War II tried to conquer all of those nations, China, India, Indonesia. They were pretty successful at that, by the way, <laughs> for a time. Uh, they, want, they knew that's where all the people are. And the Bible tells us that that's going to happen at some, some point in time. And this is a... a a sign of that coming to pass. We also know that from Ezekiel 38 and 39 that that there is a conglomeration of nations that are going to invade Israel. Uh, probably 
uh, we saw probably at the beginning of the tribulation period that's headed up by Russia, Iran, and Turkey <laughs> for article number two. Uh, this is from May 12th. They're actually having their elections today. May, they may already be done. I'm not sure what the outcome is, but here is yeah, uh, an article talking. This is from May 12th. One of the candidates for the president of Turkey, yeah, presidential candidate, says right there in the headline. Don't have to guess what, uh, what he's running for. I would guess that his chances of winning are pretty low. <laughs> with Erdogan. Now, I'm sure they have free and fair elections there in Turkey, just like we do here in the United States. So, But at any rate, Turkey's future is in Asia, presidential candidate says. He is uh, Perinchik. Again, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. He's 80 years old, so they have kind of the same situation going on in Turkey that we do here in the United States. He leads the Patriotic Party, described as a left-wing nationalist movement. Huh. Uh, he's widely seen as the underdog in the May 14th election in which the Western-backed uh, Kemal something crazy, not sure how to pronounce that, <laughs> seeks to unseat the incumbent President uh, Erdogan. Uh, so at any rate, he's a, a leftist nationalist, uh, they called those people Nazis in Germany back in World War II. Leftist, not right, left. Don't let people uh, fool you on that one. Uh, at any rate, he is a nationalist, he, and he thinks that Turkey's future is in the East, not the West. Turkey is uh, trying to join NATO, have been uh, try, or the, uh, and trying to become integrated with the European Union and this kind of thing. And again, our three nation, the, the head of our three-nation invasion force that is actually made up of many nations that we see in, again, Ezekiel 38 and 39, Russia, Iran, and Turkey. So for that to take place, Turkey is not going to be aligned with Europe, they're going to turn to the east. So while I don't think this guy has a chance of winning uh, the election that is taking place, that uh, says in there, it's May 14th, maybe there's a runoff. I just saw a headline that the election was today. Uh, so at any rate, at some point in time, they are going to turn east. They are going to join with these eastern nations and participate in an invasion of Israel, where they will subsequently be destroyed. Uh, so again, just signs signs that God's plan is, is moving. It may not happen today. It might not happen uh, next week. It may not even happen next year. But you just see the, the pieces of the puzzle are there and ready to be locked into place. And it's, you know, when you put together a jigsaw puzzle and you dump out the box and it just looks horrendous, and then you start to get all the pieces flipped over and you find the corners and it, they just start sliding together and eventually, you know, you're putting the thing together. Uh, that's what's happening. It, the only difference is here, we don't really know how far along 
the, the puzzle is in coming to completion. Some days it seems like it's really, it's, there's just one more piece that needs to go in. And other days it seems like, you know, well, maybe, maybe not. We don't know. And I think that's the, that's the whole point of uh, Scripture or the takeaway that God wants us to have is that we don't know and that we are to be faithful in the meantime. Because if we did, we did know that it, so the rapture is next week, our attitude would be, uh, it could go in a two different directions. We could be super motivated to tell everybody we know about Jesus and get everything in order. Or we could just say, all right, whatever. Uh, let's just have fun until the Lord comes again. But not knowing should uh, drive us to be a little more attentive to the things that need to be taken care of all the time, more consistently over time. And here's one that, that kind of makes you think that, well, maybe there's still hope in the world. Uh, Christian Headlines, this is from. I just read it the other day, but it says the date on it is April 28th, so this, was, uh, this is old news by now. But the headline is, Christian substitute teacher fired for opposing same-sex book is reinstated. Uh, and the article basically says that this woman, she's a substitute teacher who also has children in the school system. And I believe they were kindergartners, first graders, some very, very young people. Uh, little children who were in the uh, class, practically babies. It's it's just mind-blowing. But they're reading this, they're going to have reading time for these children, and the the book is you know, just the typical thing, two dads, two moms, and pictures, and the whole nine yards, and she doesn't want her children to be exposed to this book. So as a parent, not as the teacher, as a parent, she says she wants her children to be uh, uh, accepted from this or not have to listen to this uh, book being read. And they fired her as a substitute teacher. She's in the role of a parent saying that she doesn't want her children to be here. So she pulls them out. The school system says, oh, you're not supporting our uh, indoctrination. And so therefore, we are going to uh, fire you. And she actually was reinstated. And she won a $180,000 judgment, which on its face sounds kind of good. She got 45000 of that. The lawyers got 135000 of that. But nevertheless, she was uh, reinstated as a substitute teacher. And then uh, was, they apologized to her and these kinds of things. So that's uh, a bit of good news. I'm not sure how much she's really going to want to substitute teach there anymore. But nevertheless, you can stand up for your children. You can stand up for the things that you believe in. Uh, you may have to fight for it, but you can still do that in our country. So that's a good thing. And finally, here's our uh, bonus bonus article this week. Came across this one May 24th was the date on it, and when I was looking for some other sources 
came across an article that was from the New York Post that was back in April that talked about the same same event. So found that kind of strange, but there were a lot of them that were brand new talking about this ultraviolet light reveals to scientists a hidden Bible passage after uh, 1,500 years later. And uh, all the articles said the same thing, so I just went with the Fox News one. Uh, Researchers say they have found a hidden version of a Bible passage that was left undiscovered for more than 1,500 years underneath a previously discovered section using ultraviolet lights. Historian Grigory Kessel from the Austrian Academy of Sciences unveiled the groundbreaking find in, in a March 2023 article in the New Testament Studies Academic Journal, which is published by the Cambridge University Press. Kissel said that they found an ancient version of chapter 12 in the book of Matthew in the Bible that had been hidden beneath a section of text for over 1,500 years. His discovery, discovering is one of the earliest translations of the Gospels, first created in the 3rd century and copied in the 6th century. So the language gets kind of confusing there. This is my understanding is that this is another uh, or a manuscript of the Bible that they used ultraviolet light to look at, look at this manuscript of the Bible, and underneath they could see another writing of the, another translation of the Bible, and it was a Syriac translation of the New Testament, in this case, Matthew chapter 12. And so at the end, this article, uh, in my mind, I don't know if it's on purpose uh, or or not, Uh, it was, the article is being covered because it's an attempt to kind of undermine our uh, faith in the scriptures. Now, why would you say that? Uh, it, the article ends by saying uh, a quote from the individual uh, Kissel who made this discovery or wrote the, the paper about it. The manuscript offers a unique gateway for researchers to understand the earliest phases of the Bible's textual evolution. So right from the start, you know, well, sort of. I mean, third century is about 300 years after it was written. So it's getting back there, but it's not, it's not a gateway to the earliest, that's for sure. It shows some differences from modern translations of the text. One of the reasons why the Dead Sea Scrolls were such an amazing find uh, in the 50s was that they, they backed up the translations of the scriptures that we had very closely of the Old Testament. So it showed the veracity of the Old Testament copies that we have today. This is saying that there are some differences. Notice, and he goes on. He used the example of Matthew chapter 12, verse 1, which in the original Greek translates to, uh, you guys are all good Bible students, so you, so you know the uh, problems with translation. We talk about them all the time. 
But at any rate, the, the original Greek translates to, quote, at that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. The new Syriac translation says, began to pick the heads of grain, rub them in their hands and eat them. In my uh, way of thinking, that translates precisely that what was happening when the disciples were walking through the fields. Have you ever walked through a wheat field? We used to have a wheat field behind our house, and the kids would go out. And have you ever tried to eat wheat? You pick it off the thing, you rub it in your hands, and there's the grains, and you eat them. That's what it means to pick wheat and eat it. That's how you do it. So this would be a perfect example of uh, the difference between formal equivalence and a dynamic equivalence translation of the Bible. These are translations. Syriac was a translation of the original Greek. And so uh, the different uh, theories about how to translate things to understand what the author is saying, that's that's the whole point is there's basically two ways to go about this. A formal equivalence is what we would call a word-for-word translation. The NASB is, by most scholars' opinion, the most literal word-for-word translation. It uses the theory formal equivalence. It doesn't do that everywhere because the languages aren't the same. So sometimes you have to get across the sense of what the author is trying to say. And when they use idioms and these kinds of figures of speech that don't translate perfectly, uh, they'll give you the sense. That's what a dynamic equivalence is. The, the NIV that gets a very bad reputation among uh, fundamentalists, I think that's Personally, I think that's a little bit unwarranted. I don't, I don't think it's Satan's Bible and this, this kind of foolish thing that you will hear. A, a person can read and understand the NIV and gain eternal life by trusting in Christ uh, <laughs> from, from the words that are written there. Is it the best translation? In my opinion, no, it's probably not the best because it uses that dynamic equivalence theory too much and you lose kind of the the literalness sometimes. Not all the time. A lot of times it's very helpful to understand what the author is trying to say to you. Nevertheless, this is a perfect example of dynamic equivalence translation. We're getting across the idea that is in the original Greek that the apostles went into the field, picked the grain, and ate it on the Sabbath, which was against the, the traditions of... The Pharisees and Jesus pointed out that, yeah, your tradition is is that. It's man-made. It's tradition. It's not the law. And you're not even you're not even following the word that you say that you do. And whether they picked the grain and immediately put it in their mouth or picked the grain and rubbed it together and then ate it, like that's how you eat wheat, <laughs> is inconsequential. But this article, and these articles are trying to undermine people's uh, understanding of the scriptures and, or, or their faith in the veracity of 
the scriptures, and that's, that's a real problem. And we shouldn't lose faith in the truth, truth of the Bible as, as uh, it's yet, I've yet to see any evidence that what we find in the scriptures isn't, isn't accurate to the original. And this is not an example that should uh, give us any doubt. So with that, let's go to Proverbs chapter 8. And we'll try to make our way through uh, the first, well, the rest of this. If you'll remember back, we covered the first five verses of Proverbs chapter 8. Last time we looked at this. And we're seeing uh, wisdom personified as we are kind of wrapping up this opening section of the book of Proverbs that is laying a foundation for the rest of the book where we will see kind of the uh, thousand-year B.C. memes of the day, if you will, were short, pithy statements that we normally think of as Proverbs. These opening chapters are covering one, mainly one topic per chapter in our in our Bibles, and here in chapter 8, we're seeing wisdom personified, which is a, a literary technique, or can uh, it can be a, a spoken technique as well, or you can see it in plays, The Wizard of Oz, where, uh, for example, the lion, the, all the different characters are, are animals that have human characteristics, that's personification. And here we're seeing wisdom is being personified in chapter 8 so that we can better understand it, better understand wisdom because we are people and we know things about people. And so the author here, Solomon, is, is bringing wisdom to life uh, through this technique. And here we, uh, we were going to see, last time we saw the call of wisdom, then we'll, today hopefully we'll see the counsel and the command of wisdom as we make our way through this, Proverbs 8, 1 says, Does not wisdom call, and understanding lift up her voice on top of the heights beside the way where the paths meet? She takes her stand beside the gates at the opening to the city. At the entrance of the doors, she cries out, To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. O naive ones, understand prudence, and fools understand wisdom. If you'll remember, way back to the beginning uh, of the book of Proverbs, it begins by saying that the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and we're getting introduced to wisdom. Essentially, wisdom is applying knowledge to your life, living in a way, living with a biblical worldview, applying the things that we see in the Bible to the world around us, and, and living according to what we find there. Roy Zook, a pro- longtime professor at Dallas Seminary, defined it this way, wisdom means being skillful and successful in one's relationships and responsibilities, observing and following the Creator's principles of order in the moral universe, having a biblical worldview and living according to it. And here, uh, wisdom, we saw last time that it's making an appeal, it's calling, it's uh, summoning, it's proclaiming, it's inviting you to, to 
live according to it. And we saw that this is very much the way that uh, Christ uh, operates in this world. He calls to us. This call is loud and clear. We see here in the verses that it's on top of the heights. It's where the paths meet. It's at the city gates. It's everywhere calling to us. Wisdom is calling to us. And, and it's, it's perfectly obvious. You have to shut your ears off to not hear it. We know things. Just by living in this world, we know that actions have consequences. It's built in to the way that we, uh, the way that God created the world to be. Sin has consequences, and we know it. And this is personified by wisdom calling out to us, avoid these things. Don't do this. Don't do that. And and we just know it uh, inherently. And that's because this this call is loud and clear. And all three persons of the Trinity call to us. Uh, the Father calls to us in the in the very creation, the way the way that human beings are created. We know a lot about uh, the the topics of today that kind of, that are grabbing our attention and are being forced upon us. Uh, had a conversation yesterday, not, not a long one. Uh, I was riding a bike, and it, uh, a topic or a conversation with a guy who's you know conservative or whatever, and thinks, oh, we ought to just we just need to drop all these social social issues and not talk about that, and just uh, worry more about the economy and the border and this kind of thing, and and. In some respects, yeah, I can see that, but I think we we kind of tried that as uh, <laughs> as a society, and it's not working too well because the the other side doesn't want to drop the things, and it's just a it's a progression further and further and further. We ignore the social issues; uh, it's not going to go our way at all because God has created the world and created human beings to interact with one another. Uh, and if you're familiar with Romans chapter 1, you know what the topic of discussion is. And so it's wise to live according to the way God has created us naturally. The Son calls to us in His crucifixion, John 12 32, very loud and clear. He will draw all men to himself when he is lifted up on the cross. We know that we're sinners and we know that we're responsible to our creator. And that is made very clear in the crucifixion. The Holy Spirit calls to us. We have a conscience and he pricks that conscience, especially when especially when you're a believer. I, he does it to unbelievers as well. And the choice is ours. Verses four and five. A call by implication means that there's a choice that is that is there. This isn't uh, <laughs> this, these aren't slave traders showing up on the shores and grabbing people. That's not how wisdom does its does its call. It calls to you, it makes an appeal. It's right in the definition of the word. An invitation, if you will. You can accept it or you cannot accept it. It's up to you. And every person has that decision to make. Very similar to our salvation. 
Every person has that decision to make. Christ uh, is not just a martyr, but he is the eternal Son of God who shed his blood, which is God's blood, for our sins. And it's eternal. It's infinite. And so he can pay infinitely for all the sins that have ever been uh, committed and ever will be committed. He is the only one who would be able to do that, and he did it. And so therefore, any person can trust in Christ for the salvation of their souls. Even Vladimir Putin could trust in Christ. His sins have been paid for. Whoever the worst person you can possibly think of is, uh, their sins have been paid for at the cross of Christ. And so that person can respond uh, if, if they will. And notice the counsel of wisdom beginning in verse 6. Proverbs 8, 6 says, Listen, for I will speak noble things, and the opening of my lips will reveal right things, for my mouth will utter truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the utterances of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing crooked or perverted in them. They are all straightforward to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. So first, notice that we have to pay attention to God's words uh, here, the words of wisdom, and, and essentially just to, to make it even a little bit more clear for us, a lot of people read this passage and kind of insert Christ for everywhere that we're seeing wisdom. And you see that in some good commentaries, that really this is, that wisdom is being personified, and the personification of wisdom is Christ. And that's I don't, that's kind of hard to argue with in in a lot of ways uh, because he is, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he is wisdom personified. He lived his life perfectly because he's perfect. He's God in human flesh. Uh, And so uh, here, wisdom is commanding us to pay attention. That, That word listen is in an is an imperative. It is a command in the Hebrew language. This is something that we that we need to be doing, paying attention. For I will speak noble things, and the opening of my lips will reveal uh, right things. And these are the kinds of things that we are to uh, pay attention to and to think on and to meditate upon. These kinds of things. That's, we, we talk about uh, some of the news articles, and sometimes, for me personally, I don't know about you, but for me personally, it can, the news can get kind of overwhelming. And it's uh, my recommendation would be if you find yourself getting depressed by the news and overwhelmed by the things that are going on in, in the world and in your life, well, take a break for them and read God's Word and think about these sorts of things that Paul says we ought to think about in Philippians chapter 4. In verse 8, he says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, uh, and those 
adjectives that he uses there perfectly describe the Bible and the things that God has done in this world is doing today and will do in the future. All of those things fit into that category. If there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Oh, that my life would be ordered in such a way that I could say this to somebody. Paul is just, he is incredible, an incredible human being that he can uh, tell these people, hey, what the things that I've taught you and what you've seen in my daily life, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And a good way to be able to do that is to think about, have your mind uh, focused on not the horrible things that we see going on in the world. And there are a lot of horrible things going on in the world. Uh, Don't have your mind completely saturated and only focused on those things. Pay attention to the Scriptures. Think about things that are true and honorable and right and pure and lovely. Things of good repute. Because the news, more often than not, are uh, about lies, things that are dishonorable, things that are not right, that are immoral, things that are ugly and of horrible reputation. That's, that's uh, Fox News, CNN, uh, 24 hours a day. That's what you're getting. So we need to take a break from that uh, from time to time, uh, at least more often than not. In fact, our our minds ought to spend more time thinking about these things. Obviously, good things, true things, right things, noble, honorable things, than the horrible things. And we'll find that the God of peace is with us. He's with us whether we know it or not. But we will become more aware of His presence the more we concentrate on His Word and the good things. And we, ought to, we need to be following God's lead in the way, that we, uh, the way that He talks is the way that we ought to talk. The things that He, that he says in His Word ought to be the things that come out of our, our mouths. Verse 7, For my mouth will utter truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the utterances of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing crooked or perverted in them. That is, that is our example for how we are to speak and, to, and just our basic attitude about the world. Speak the truth. Ephesians 4.25, Paul says to the Ephesians, Therefore, and again, just as a reminder, there's a reason why that word therefore is there. If you'll remember Ephesians Basically, chapters 1, 2, and 3 lay out the doctrinal truths. Therefore, live your life in a certain way. Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. Uh, He says, Ephesians 4, 25, one of those aspects of living in light of the doctrinal truths about God is, therefore, Laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. In the church context, truth needs to be 
what we speak to one another. Uh, it, lies and uh, these kinds of things disrupt the harmony and destroy the unification that a church enjoys. Paul knew that. That's why he's telling them that here in Ephesians 4 in the application of the doctrinal truths about God, salvation, his plan for the church, and how we ought to be ordering ourselves. One of the, the enormous overarching applications is speaking truth, each one of you, uh, with his neighbor. We need to abhor lying the way that God does. Uh, here and wickedness is a is an abomination to my lips. All the utterances of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing crooked or perverted in them. We need to abhor lying the way that God does. Paul didn't just say it to the Ephesians; he said it to the Colossians as well. Colossians three nine: Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Implication. Lying is what evil people do. Lying is what people, unsaved people do. Lying is not what Christians do. Oh, did he just say, if you tell a lie, you're not a Christian? No, of course not. We're, we still sin. But the actions of a Christian are in line with the actions of God. And so this is, this is the sanctification process becoming more like Christ. That is the goal. We are not Christ. We are not little gods, uh, <laughs> in spite of what the, the uh, I, don't, I don't think Pentecostal is the right word. Maybe it is the right word, but a lot of the uh, prosperity gospel, word of faith people, NAR people, yes, New Apostolic Reformation, they have this doctrine that we're little gods, uh, there are some crazy things out there among some very popular uh, teachers. I, I don't even want to call them teachers. Let's call them uh, preachers, false teachers, false prophets. The Bible calls them. Uh, yes, they teach these kinds of things like we are little gods. We're not little gods. We still have a sin nature. There, there's a civil war, if you will, going on within us. You can read about that in Romans chapter 7. Uh, and however, we are to order our lives after the things of God. And, and Christ is the example. God is the example. Uh, for us, we are to abhor lying the same way that he does. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. So there, yes, that is the way that our lives are to be ordered. But you see right in, right in the language, if we're paying attention, that it's still possible for us to do it. So the, the other side of the coin, kind of the other extreme is the uh, the extreme Calvinist who's going to tell you if you commit this sin, then you were never saved or you never believed or you're not elect or whatever terminology they want to they want to put on it. Well, it says he, he's telling them not to do it means they probably were doing it. Stop doing that since you have laid aside the old self it, with its evil practices. Start living the way that God wants us to. And notice 
that the word is a pathway to righteousness. There in verse 9. They are all straightforward to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. So God's word and, and wisdom, truth, is leading you down this golden path. The truth of God's word, it's just leading you right to wise living. Here it is. It's like when we uh, when I feed the pigs in the morning, you can, I could lead those things right into the middle of I-75 if I wanted to with some grain. They would follow me wherever I go, and they would be nipping at your heels uh, to get there just to get that grain. That's the way the Bible is for us. It is leading you right to righteous living. It's right before your nose if we will just accept it and, uh, and do the things that we see here, wise living is right before us. We're being led to it. And there's a great blessing in it, in applying the knowledge. Proverbs 3.13, how blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. There is great blessing in following these principles, although we may not uh, see it uh, immediately in our lives. We're kind of like Farmers, if you will, farmers don't immediately, as soon as they put the seed in the ground, they don't go out and the next day, oh, great, time to start picking the harvest. That's not the way, not the way it works for them, not the way it works in your garden, and it, oftentimes it's not that way in the spiritual life. Uh, sometimes these things take time, but you need to keep seeking, keep asking, stay diligent. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. For what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask Him? Keep seeking. Keep asking. Keep knocking. Keep going to the Word. Keep applying the truths. And eventually, you are going to have the blessing of applying the truth of God's Word in in. Uh, reaping the benefits of living wisely. You see that uh, it's demonstrated in a number of ways in our lives. The more you're not going to be sinless, as it's been said many times in your Christian life, but over time you will find as you're applying God's Word consistently to your life and your actions, you will find that you sin less than you did before. And that's there's great blessing in that as we as we live our lives it doesn't uh, again as the prosperity gospel people will tell you that uh, you'll be rich and healthy and all of these things and of course as i mentioned i think it was last week the only people who get rich from that are them are the uh, the false prophets at the head of it there's also a command of wisdom notice proverbs 8 in verse 10, take my instruction and not silver, and knowledge rather than choicest gold, for wisdom is better than jewels, 
and all desirable things cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance, and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Take knowledge and instruction. It's more valuable than uh, gold and silver and jewels. If you'll remember, or this is an, an imperative also, a command to take these things, to do this. This is something that you that you have to uh, do. It's better for you, quite fl- frankly, to be poor and saved and obedient than it is for you to have all the money in the world or to even have as much money as you think. All your problems will be solved. Uh, it's much more important for you to be saved and obedient to the Lord than it is to, to have those kinds of things. We see that demonstrated in Luke uh, 16, verses 19 through 31, uh, if memory serves. I don't remember. I think that's the story or the uh, parable of the, the rich man and Lazarus. It is. And uh, we see the rich man being, uh, you know, having all of his uh, all of his needs taken care of financially. He's a very wealthy person, but he's unsaved, and and he dies. Lazarus, who has nothing, is begging. He dies. Lazarus has trusted God and goes immediately to what Jesus describes as Abraham's bosom. Uh, Today, as a believer, we would be absent from the body and present with the Lord where he is. That's in heaven. Uh, Things were a little different then. Topic for a different day. Uh, And however, the rich man, he has never trusted in God. He's trusted in himself and his ability to gain wealth and all his problems were taken care of on this earth. Didn't care about God, spiritual things. And he dies, and he immediately is separated from the presence of God in Hades, and he's very unpleasant. It's very unpleasant for him, and he wants uh, somebody to go and talk to his brothers so that they don't end up here also, because he knows them. He knows they haven't trusted in God either, and he doesn't want them to endure this and uh, uh Send send Lazarus to him. If somebody comes back from the dead, they'll listen to him. No, nope. no, actually they won't. And that is showing very clearly to the Jewish people who are listening to Jesus what is going to happen in their future. Somebody's going to come back from the dead and tell you about the things of the Lord. And as a nation, they're still not going to believe them. It's, as we've seen in Revelation, going to take seven years of tribulation for them to believe. Don't be like that, is what this is saying. Uh, Desire wisdom and knowledge more than you desire money, because after all, you cannot serve God and money, as Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. It says in the NASB, Matthew 6, 24. Doesn't mean that if you have money that you're an evil person. 
uh, it, he's speaking more, of course, to your priorities. What's the higher priority? If money is the higher priority, at some point in time, I guarantee you, you're going to compromise your uh, Christian biblical beliefs in order to get it. If money is the higher priority, it, we should not be that way. You can't serve God in money. You can't have money in a higher place than God is what Jesus is saying. He's not condemning wealth or money as uh, sometimes people will try to portray. God has to be the higher priority, however. And how do we, how do we show wisdom? How do we show that we have gained knowledge and are applying it to our lives? Well, that's through prudence, gaining knowledge and having <laughs> discretion, as it says there, in these verses. Prudence is trusting Christ and obeying Him. Trust Him for your salvation, then trust Him day to day as you walk with Him. Uh, acting, I have written in my notes, acting or showing that you care and think about the, the future. That is, is having prudence, spiritually speaking. And of course, you can do that in your daily life as well, preparing for the future. That's prudence. Gaining knowledge, gaining knowledge of the word. Psalm 119.9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. The Bible is full of knowledge. When we apply it to our lives, we can live in a, in a way that is wise. Living in a pure way is wise. Apply the truths of Scripture to your daily life and you will uh, live with purity. Having discretion. James talks about that. In James... Uh, isn't that interesting? That was probably a mistake. <laughs> uh, having discretion. James 3.13 Who among you is wise and understanding? Let, it, let him show by his good behavior, his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. The wisdom, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. James seems like he had a portal to 21st century America when he's writing these things. Verse 17, James 3, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the way that we need to be uh, living our lives. Discretion. I have a definition written here, down here for it, or typed down here, I guess it is. The quality of behaving or speaking in such a way as to avoid causing offense or revealing private information. That's a, that's a pretty good... Uh, definition for discretion and how we ought to be living and that that is a wise in uh, application. 
True fear of the Lord is to hate what God hates. God hates evil. uh, Some evil things are listed there in verse 13. Pride, arrogance, the evil way, the perverted mouth. God hates all of those things. And the, the true fear of the Lord is hating the things that God hates. It's very clear from the scriptures, many of the things that, that God hates. And number one on that list is pride. We may have, we, you may think of something else that God uh, hates uh, more than that. And in you know, conservative writing or this kinds of things. Maybe you think it's uh, homosexuals or transgenders. That's the thing that God really hates. Well, you know what God hates more than that even is pride. Because pride absolutely keeps you, can keep you from being saved. Again, there are pl- pr- plenty of proud Christians, but that is, that is uh, not a characteristic that is flattering to us in any way. God hates it. He says it many times throughout the Proverbs that God hates pride. In fact, pride uh, goes before a fall. Pride is the thing that will lead you to a fall in your life, uh, whatever, however that may uh, come about. Its root cause is probably pride, thinking that you know you know enough. I don't need God. I don't need his word. I've got this all figured out. Whatever the manifestation of it is, uh, pride is something that, that God hates. And a, a true fear of the Lord is hating the things that God hates and not allowing them to take root in your life and instead ordering your life the way that God's uh, word says that we ought to. So wisdom being personified here in Proverbs chapter 8, it calls to us, it's very clear, it counsels us to live according to his word, and in fact it commands us to do these kinds of things. Kinds of things, and uh, primarily that command is to hate the things that God hates. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. Thank you for the book of Proverbs that is still so perfectly relevant to our lives. Even 3,000 years later, uh, these truths still go right to our hearts and still convict us the very same way that they did to Solomon and his direct audience who read these things. And just pray that, that we would be sensitive to that and sensitive to your word, sensitive to the, to the work of the Holy Spirit in our life so that we can be more like you and to the people around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.